Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and in our continuing series called Good Politics, we have a special guest today, Beto O'Rourke. Uh, we're so glad to have you, uh, Congressman O'Rourke. Thank you for spending time with us. Uh, we look forward to this conversation. It's my pleasure, George, and appreciate the, the invitation to join you today. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. Well, thank you. So let me do a little more introduction here and say that for three terms, uh, you were a congressman from uh, El Paso, where you continue to live now. You were a candidate for the U.S. Senate against Ted Cruz, and uh, you were uh, for a time presidential candidate during the 2020 season. Uh, but uh, a, a lot of things uh, you've been involved in during that period of time that have actually moved us toward a conversation like this about good politics, because especially during your campaign uh, against Ted Cruz, you just blanketed every county in, in this state and uh, really stirred up uh, a lot of voters. Uh, in fact, before Joe Biden received the most votes of any Democrat in Texas, uh, you uh, held that record during that race. So what did you learn about the political climate and about good politics, if I can put it that way, during that period? I, I learned that Texans are good people. And you know, that's, that's politics at, at its root. Uh, politics is about how people come together and do something collectively that any one of us is unable to do on our own. And in concert, especially in a democracy, um, we elect those who will represent us. Um, we decide together um, the, the path forward for our city or our town, our state or, or our country. And traveling those 254 counties and visiting hundreds or thousands of cities um, with, within the state of Texas and meeting hundreds of thousands of, of people and winning millions of votes at the end of the day, um, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what came home to me, that uh, be you a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, uh, white, black, Mexican-American, uh, 10th generation Texan, or you just got here 10 days ago, um, you're, you're a good person. And that was proven time and again in the kindness and generosity shown to me in the civility uh, with which I was approached, especially when somebody um, didn't like me or didn't like the positions that I held or the policies that, that I pursued. It was really the exception when someone was ugly or unkind or vicious or, or malicious. Um, I remember uh, being at a, uh, a rally in San Antonio. A really big crowd came out. I don't know, maybe 800, 1,000 people. And there was a, a small contingent, all heavily armed with weapons of war, AK-47s, AR-15s, you know, big American flag. And, and they were there to protest and to cause a scene. And at every event, George, that we had, almost without exception, uh, I would conduct the event as a town hall. So, so anyone who had something to say or a question to ask could do so. And they would literally be given the microphone. And I asked the, the person who was supporting me at the event to hand the microphone to the leader of this, this group that was protesting. And they were chanting stuff when I was talking. They were trying to interrupt the event. And I said, look, you don't have to do that. I, I will give you the microphone. You say your piece and I'll do my best to respond. And that's exactly how it worked out. And it, it wasn't necessarily easy 
And it was certainly confrontational and, and uncomfortable probably for all involved. But at the end of the event, after I had a chance to shake everybody's hand, the leader of that group came up to me to shake my hand and to give me his phone number. And he said, you know what? I'm really impressed that, that you actually wanted to hear what I had to say. And it looked like you listened. And I can tell that we disagree. But next time you're in San Antonio, give me a ring. Um, I'd, I'd love to, to sit down and, and talk with you. And so, you know, at a moment that this country is, is so divided and so highly polarized, and we think that our differences are going to define us forever and that there's no coming back or coming together, I, I, I just know from my time in Texas and especially traveling the state that, that the best is yet to come and the best is within us. And you just have to give people a chance to do that. So that, that was my big takeaway from, from okay. traveling to Well, great. I, I, I'm not sure that since that time, we have improved very much in this uh, civility of politics. It seems to me, I was watching a, a hearing today with the director of Homeland Security, and, uh, and it was a, a, a conversation that you, you sort of knew whether the person was a Democrat or Republican generally by the tone of the questioning, you know, and it, it just seems there's so much adversarialism going on uh, in our partisanship that it's very hard to get to the common good. And yet, uh, you know, you had a famous uh, road trip with Will Hurd, uh, who we've also had on, uh, on Good Politics. And, uh, you know, you, you demonstrated as uh, two fellow congressmen uh, across the aisle that, that if you are searching for the common good, if you're trying to do what's best for the country, you can listen to one another and, and, and find a way forward. Why is it so hard to find the Beto O'Rourke, Will Hurd dynamic in our politics today? I, I think it's there um, and it may be a latent force or, or opportunity within us at this moment. George, I think though so much has changed since uh, 2017, uh, four years ago when, when Will and I made that trip, um, including the fact that so much of the Republican Party is now beholden to the former president and the big lie in which he traffics that mm. essentially asserts that the 2020 election was stolen, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, that there was widespread fraud. And it was that lie that certainly inspired the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol and where five people, including a Capitol police officer were murdered. And it's that lie uh, that, to this day, so many elected Republicans continue to repeat to the point that Liz Cheney, who refused to repeat it, was removed from her, her leadership position. Now, George, having said that, I, I do not think that every Republican believes that lie or is complicit in, in the former president's crimes. I, I want to make that clear. But it, it is very hard to find that good faith partner at a time that the party has, has more and more come to resemble a cult of personality uh, around the president. I, I don't think that has to be the end of things, and, and I certainly hope it won't, and I'll do everything in my power to work to make sure that it isn't. And I think we always have to remember you know, Abraham Lincoln and, and his extraordinary generosity and kindness and charity, in his own words, that he evinced in his second inaugural address at the end of the Civil War that had claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans and he talked about um, not acting in malice and instead acting in charity. 
And he had an extraordinary humility, especially as it regard, regarded the, the Confederacy and those who'd taken up arms against the Union. You, you could see that, that his intent was to bind the country back together again, regardless of or maybe even including the crimes that had been committed and, and the very serious sins of, of slavery, human bondage, and, and the depredations that, that, that begat the Civil War. So, you know, that's our moment of greatest crisis, and we can look to what our greatest leader did in, in its wake. And I hope that proves instructive to us now that we, we, we may disagree and we may see some things that really trouble us on the other side of the aisle. And yet we are all still Americans. We're all still human beings. And we've got to find a way to come back together. We do. And, and, and as fellow human beings and, and, and citizens, uh, there, there are politicians and then there are the people. And uh, obviously politicians are the people too in our system. But I, I do want you to speak, if you would, to the, the question of how to encourage more people to participate in our democracy. Because I think some of the noise of these current times and the broken relationships that have happened in families and in religious communities over political differences that have come to define us more in our friendships and our families. It, it, it's just been a, a remarkably painful time. It, it, it makes some people retreat, uh, I think, and say it's not worth becoming an advocate, becoming engaged in the political process. Uh, what would you say uh, it, to people to, to help them draw upon a motivation that says, here's, here's why you should be involved and here's how you can be involved constructively? Uh, it's such a good question. And I don't know that it's ever been more timely. The, the fate of democracy is truly an open question, unlike any time, certainly in our lives and, and perhaps the life of, of this country. It is the insurrection that we saw on the 6th of January. It's the you know, complicit members of Congress who sought to overturn an election. It, it was that bitterly hard fought contest that resulted in, in Joe Biden you know, legitimately, lawfully, uh, democratically being elected to, to the highest office in the land. And it is all the recriminations that, that have flowed and followed since then. But when you add to that, the fact that there are more than 360 voter suppression bills pending or passed in 47 different state legislatures, all of which, by the way, would constrict or constrain the right to vote. You, you recognize that we are um, under the greatest attack against democracy, perhaps in the life of this democracy. And, and much in the same way that our country, Republicans and Democrats, by the way, came together in 1965 to, to meet the forces that were arrayed against democracy and against the enjoyment of full civil rights of all our fellow Americans and passed the Voting Rights Act and the year before the Civil Rights Act. I think Republicans, Democrats, independents, again, have an opportunity to engage. And as you suggest, to, to vote and to advocate and to register others and to participate civically but also to push for the Voting Rights Act of our day, which is known as the For the People Act that is pending in the United States Senate right now. This is really our 1965 moment to tell one another, this current generation and every generation that follows this one, just who we are and what we represent. And if we fail this test, 
Um, it, it's not as though we will lose convenience at the ballot box. It is very possible that we will lose democracy itself. And for those students of history, we know that democracy briefly flourished 24, 2,500 years ago in, in, in ancient Greece, and then essentially vanished from the earth for millennia until it reappeared in full force in America. And we really only had a multiracial democracy in this country since 1965. This is the exception, not the rule in human history or on planet earth today, and we could just as easily lose it. And so if, if that appeals to anyone, this, this make or break, do or die moment that we're in, now is the time to step up and, and be engaged. And that can come in any variety of forms from voting to registering, to reaching out to your United States congressperson or, or senator or writing a letter to the White House. But, but now is the moment that we're being tested and we, we cannot be found wanting. And, and the For the People Act, as I understand it, still doesn't have enough Democrat votes uh, in order to pass at this moment. So there's a lot of need for advocacy uh, to that end, I think. Uh, one question beyond the, the, the question of federal legislation, congressional legislation about that uh, versus state legislation, how would the For the People Act uh, impact these states that have all been operating with their own set of election laws? I mean, states run their own elections. Uh, that's part of our constitutional approach so far. And, uh, and so we have, as you said, these 43 states that are, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of voter um, suppression laws in your language. I think they would say voter integrity, but the net effect is, as you've suggested, more of a limitation on voting. What, would there be a supersession of those state votes, uh, state laws by the, this uh, For the People Act? Yes, in, in a word, yes. And it, it's much like the decision we had to make as a country in, in 1965. You know, Texas could decide that there would be a poll tax, uh, mm -hmm. for example, or a literacy test, or right. as Texas actually did for 20 years, institute an all-white Democratic primary at a time that the Democratic primary was dispositive in determining who our member of Congress or U.S. Senator or Governor, or frankly, given our, our weight in the Electoral College, who the, who the president would be. For 20 years, from 1924 to 1944, so in the lifetime of some of those who are still with us, if you were a Black man or a Black woman in Texas, you literally, by law, could not participate in, in our election. So, the response to that was, yes, to, to supersede at the federal level through the 1965 Voting Rights Act and say, you know, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, the states of the former Confederacy, you do not get to pick who is allowed to vote, who will be eligible to register and who can cast a ballot. We're going to make sure that whether you are white or black or, or just as long as you're an American and you're eligible, that you will have no obstacle or interference in casting that ballot. Okay. What happened to that law, of course, is in 2013, the Supreme Court, through their Shelby decision, removed what is known as the preclearance provision, yeah. whereby previously Texas had to go to the federal government and say, look, we're thinking about changing the number of polling places or how we ascertain your identification through voter ID or these current congressional districts. We're going to change them. And DOJ would say yes, or they would say no, you have to make these changes because they disenfranchise a certain part of your population, that protection was removed. And in the eight years since the Shelby decision, you've seen the most onerous voter ID laws in the country, a racial gerrymander of our jurisdictions, 
Uh, and, and you've seen uh, 750 polling place closures concentrated in the fastest growing black and Latino neighborhoods in Texas. Whatever the intent, the effect and the outcome is it's been a lot harder for communities of color and those in big cities to be able to participate in, in our politics. And again, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you shouldn't want that. You should want elections won on a contest of ideas and track record and vision, not on restricting who's able to participate. And so that's that's really a job because it affects the civil rights of, of the people of the state. That's really a job for the federal government. And that's why I am hoping at least that the For the People Act will ultimately pass and be signed into law by President Biden. And yes, it would roll back all of these voter constriction or voter okay. suppression. Good. Well, we, we don't have much time left, but one more question then uh, to follow up on that. When I talked to Will Hurd, we talked about the uh, threat to democracy is not just at the ballot box generally and whether the election, uh, it, uh, voter access in elections and uh, fairness in that respect, but also this um, continuing practice of gerrymandering districts that uh, makes representative form of government less and less representative. Uh, so, for instance, um, my particular um, uh, district is one in which my uh, congressman wins by about a 92 um, percent, you know, uh, percentage uh, every, every time. It, it's so, so therefore, he has no interest in actually hearing from me or responding to me because he doesn't, you know, really represent me. And this makes for... Uh, a disenfranchisement, I think, and a discouragement of people who feel like their representatives don't represent them. Now, Will's uh, suggestion to that is that there be a standard deviation of maybe uh, six or eight percent, but every district be a competitive one, uh, as close to 50-50 as possible, so that we don't have as much partisanship in that respect. But we are getting ready to head into gerrymandering time again this fall uh, with redistricting. Texas has two more um, congressional seats. And do you see any possible way for us to influence that process in order to make it fairer? Uh, or are we headed toward 10 more years before the next sentence and uh, census and redistricting before we're going to make progress on that? I think you described the, the situation perfectly. And I think that Congressman Hurd's um, solution is a good one to, to draw competitive districts that force representatives to campaign to everybody and, and to listen to everybody, be more responsive to everyone and to be accountable to the people that they purport to, to represent. And to be clear, Democrats and Republicans both engage in gerrymandering. It's members of Congress choosing their voters instead of voters choosing their members of Congress. That's the system that prevails in, in Texas today. The, the hope, really the only hope we have is that bill that I mentioned earlier, the For the People Act, okay. which would mandate nonpartisan independent redistricting commissions. So the politicians, the Will Hurds and Beto O'Rourke's of the world are not allowed in the room. Um, instead, you draw for competitiveness, you draw for compactness, you draw for communities of interest, and you, you draw them in such a way that to, to one of your first questions that you asked, there's a real incentive for people to vote because unlike many, I don't get on my high horse and look down upon those who don't vote. I think there are many people 
who, who have wisely chosen not to vote in Texas because they recognize that their vote has a very diminished impact. They've been drawn into a district where they have no hope of changing the outcome. Unfortunately, in Texas's history, it's very often Black Texans and Latino Texans who are drawn into a district to give the incumbent an overwhelming advantage, diluting the power of their vote, or drawn into a district where they have an absolute marginal opportunity to, in, to impact uh, because they, they have been so-called cracked into a, a certain district. So nonpartisan redistricting, getting the politicians out of the game, that's, that's my hope. And, and passage of the For the People Act would make that a reality in Texas. Otherwise, what you just described as our future for the next 10 years, that will hold. And, and you will have these districts drawn by their current occupants and, and the people will be left out of the process, unfortunately. While you don't hold office currently, thank you for continuing to engage and to continuing to challenge us and to participate in this democratic process. Good politics involves all of us and we are grateful for the inspiration and the challenge that you've levied to us uh, in this program. And we look forward to talking with you again down the road. Thanks. Likewise, thank you for having me on and thanks for engaging in the conversation. You bet, God bless. Adios. Adios. God bless. <laughs> Thank you for doing that, George. You're welcome. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.